Hello and welcome to episode two of season two of Guido Talks. That's right, we're back for the second week of the parliamentary term. This is in fact the 16th episode of Guido Talks that we have recorded for all you lucky people. You're welcome. My name's Tom Harwood and I am joined once again by Guido Talks founder and editor Paul Staines, as well as reporter Christian Calgi. And you're listening to, or indeed watching, Guido Talks, the show where we look back over our favourite stories and the most read stories on Guido Talks this week. Um, so let's kick off with the story that I think has led not only this week, but last week as well. And this week it really kicked off on the Sunday with an interview with the Justice Secretary, Robert Buckland. Now, uh, Calgi, can you talk us through this? Yeah, the interview on Mars show with Robert Buckland uh, set the tone for what was a pretty fraught week uh, by the standards of British politics with an 80-seat majority government. Uh, Robert Buckland was continually pressed on whether he'll be able to stay in the job, uh, given the revelations from the Internal Market Bill, which, of course, uh, the headline is that one of the, some of the provisions within the Northern Ireland section break international law and as the government's top legal representative um, it would be very tricky for Robert Buckland to stay in situ um, if the government broke international law uh, and he sort of you know did that classic politician thing of giving an answer but giving himself quite a key get out clause which was that he will have to resign if the government breaks international law in a way that he finds unacceptable and as we guided readers through this week and as we helped educate uh, there are uh, a number of mitigating reasons why the government will probably end up getting away with breaking international law and that is primarily that it will have to be prompted by the EU dropping their side of the agreement uh, to negotiate in good faith with the UK so I think Robert Buckland is fairly safe in that sense but it was a it was an obvious route of questioning to go down. Well, this is obviously an area where there's a lot of disagreement over, and I think we'll talk about a bit later the leaked notes that the ERG were putting around and, and what that was arguing in favour of. But I, I think there are a lot of QCs who would disagree with that. So this is not necessarily a clear-cut point. But one of the elements of confusion I thought this week was on um, the original statement from last week that was continually discussed through this week as well, and that was from Brandon Lewis when he was presented with that uh, Financial Times Peter Foster leaked story um, of, of the, uh, the idea that this bill would, would contain elements that could break international law in the first place. It got sort of leaked and swept under the feet of the government before they could explain what they were doing. And so quite haphazardly, Brandon Lewis set out and said, yes, this does break international law in that now infamous quote, in a limited and specific way, as if that were to absolve it. However, when he said this, I think we've subsequently all learned, he didn't mean this as in this, the bill. He meant this as in the implementation of a certain provision within the bill, or, or I think two certain provisions within the bill. If those were implemented, i.e. Not, not passed through the House of Commons, but actually enacted by ministers, that then potentially could break international law. And I think the difference is where, where you can have ministers sounding completely contradictory, as in, um, I think you had Priti Patel uh, on, uh, on Kay Burley's show this week saying, 
no, the bill doesn't break international law. And that sounds like it doesn't jar, um, that sounds like it jars with Brandon Lewis's statement. But they're talking about two different things. Brandon was talking about implementing the provisions and Pretty was talking about passing the legislation. And so what could sound contradictory, I think actually is quite harmonious, but was communicated in quite a poor way. I mean, it was it, it was always going to be difficult, um, and I do uh, have a bit of sympathy with the government that the Financial Times did pull the rug from under their feet, and they probably hadn't finished working on how it was going to be sold, both to MPs who needed to understand that policy detail, but then to the public, uh, you know, who needed to understand it in more broad terms. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, it, it did sound jarring. It sounded like it clashed. And there was actually, behind the scenes, a decent amount of briefing between political camps, you know, because each each camp was essentially having to justify why their minister was right. And we had people pointing out that actually only Brandon Lewis had used that specific phrase in the House of Commons uh, versus... Um, the fact that actually if he'd said anything else in the House of Commons, it would have essentially been misleading the House and that would have been a, a big sort of no-no. Uh, so Brian, it was difficult. Brian, Brian made very clear that he had got a sign-off on every single letter and comma of the phrase that he said, including by, it turned out, Lord Keane, who now has resigned on the grounds that he doesn't agree with the policy that he helped draft. You know, it's not the policy with the, he can't, he can't uh, accept the situation they're in. And as a lawyer, he feels, you know, you shouldn't go around breaking international law. Well, he had a role in drafting. Then there was the other confusion that Lord Keane caused when he said, Brandon was, uh, uh, had answered the wrong question or something like that. Mm. And it actually was, didn't make any sense. And then next thing you know, he's resigned. So. All in all, a, uh, a farcical week. <laughs> yes, and reading Lord Keane's resignation letter, actually, it's, it's quite interesting. I think there's a line in it that says something like, I, I struggled to present um, the, the arguments for the legality of this bill in a way that's conducive to, you know, you know whatever. Basically, he, he tried to make an argument for how this could be legal after advising Brandon Lewis to say, implementing the provisions breaks international law. And the way that he tried it's to argue- 10,000 pound a day QC. Usually they're quite good at presenting any argument at all. <laughs> so- uh, Usually uh, usually they stick to the same argument on the same case. Um, yeah. Frankly, frankly I'd, have, I'd have sacked him. I mean, he, he buggered this week up badly. Uh, that was one of the reasons why Brandon seemed to be losing support was that when he went and spoke to the House of Lords uh, earlier in the week, it seemed like he was siding more with Pretty Patel. And then apparently conversations with Brandon Lewis in the background ended up with Lord Keane accepting that he had said something that was incorrect, both to a select committee and on the floor of the House of Lords, created this massive confusion about a policy on which the wording he had been instrumental in, in wording and signing off on only to go and, you know, really, really screw the government over in presenting its argument and, and helping create clarity on the issue. I don't think it was well, an issue of presenting it in a way that 
jarred, uh, that, that jammed with his law profession. I think it was a way of badly presenting something that he should have known better how to do. Well, he did these two different things, didn't he? He advised Brandon Lewis to say, yes, this breaks international law in a limited and specific way. And then before the, um, I think, Justice Select Committee in the Lords, um, he presented this argument to say that the only way that we would use these powers is if the EU has abandoned talks, i.e. Um, we're heading for no deal. There's an argument then that the EU was behaving in bad faith and that would disapply the treaty anyway, so there'd be no treaty to breach. Now that argument um, is the one that he came up with to, to uh, argue for the legality of this in any circumstance. And that's also the argument that the European Research Group was sharing amongst MPs that we leaked out onto our website on Monday. And that is that to say that th there's no illegality here whatsoever, because the only way that this would be used is if the EU has acted in such bad faith that talks are abandoned, that the treaty uh, the, only, the, the clauses within the treaty that, that bind both sides to act with good faith would have been breached and therefore the treaty would have been disapplied. That's the argument of the ERG and that's the argument that Lord Keane tried to put across latterly. It's just that clashed with the argument that Lord Keane seemed to advise Brandon Lewis with. So those two things were really, um, they didn't sit well together. But, but of course, actually, Almost none of this mattered this week because the, after all that furore, one of our most read stories this week was we were trying to compile a list of all the MPs that were potentially going to rebel on the internal market bill's second reading. In the end, it passed with a 77 majority um, and only two MPs actually voted against it. Um, uh, there, were, there were about 30 abstentions, but given there's now been a a deal this morning on that particular Bob Neill amendment that was potentially going to coalesce support from some of the Commons old guard, people like Theresa May and uh, uh, and, and others. Uh, it might be the case now that it passes with an even higher majority at the at the third reading. So a bit of an anticlimax, but there's always the Lords, which could prove uh, troublesome. Now you say this morning, this is of course, we're recording this episode on Thursday. So by the time it goes out on Saturday, it would have been a couple of days old. But of course, this is the big um, agreement that was struck between that rebel commander, Bob Neal, and number 10. And that agreement actually doesn't seem to have given all that much ground um, from number 10 that, that, that you might think, because of course, Boris, when he was presenting this bill for the first time, when, when he was able to give what I thought was actually quite a good performance in the House of Commons, certainly a lot better than his recent Prime Minister's questions attempts, um, when, when Boris had the opportunity to face Ed Miliband and present, uh, present the bill, he, he said that if these provisions, if these controversial provisions were enacted, you'd have to bring forward uh, a statutory instrument and that would have to, of course, be voted on by the Commons anyway. So now that's going to be more hardwired into the legislation. The government's going to propose its own amendment to the legislation on Monday, I think it is, or Tuesday. And, and that will probably pass. It's going to be enough, certainly, to win over Bob Neill. It hasn't won over everyone, but of course the government has quite a large majority, so that might not matter all that much. Um, but Paul, just one uh, more thing. Guy on DeFrage popped up in the story as well, don't forget. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> reminded everyone he's still alive and kicking. 
and threatened to bring back the Brexit party to stand against anyone who voted against the bill. Because even though he's got his complaints with the way Boris is conducting things, he thinks it would be a lot worse if they didn't get the internal market bill through. Um, whether that's a shadow army or a or a imaginary army remains to be seen. But just remind people that the Brexit party is always there. And Nigel does have a knack of coming in at the right time to do the right thing. We'll see. Yes, and we spoke to Nigel and he said that he's got this enormous database of, of people ready and willing to, to campaign on this stuff. And of course, he is someone who's won two national elections before, um, almost from scratch both times. So perhaps not to be underestimated. Um, no, but, it's uh, also, also ironic because I've heard that over the, since, since December, the Brexit party have uh, paid off their election debts at an astonishing speed. So they really are in an incredible position to get kick you know kick back up and uh, and and get the tories in line if they're misbehaving right well i think that's probably where we should leave parliamentary wrangling for now and move on to another of our favorite institutions and that is of course the bbc what was the big bbc news this week christian yes by far and away i think our most read of the week and this was the bbc's annual uh, review uh, which contains most juicily of all their their pay packets of all their top stars earning over £150,000 so everyone uh, was very keen to see what their favourite uh, journalist or, or celebrity was earning we had people uh, like uh, Gary Lineker uh, who, was, uh, who earned £1.7 million although he is apparently uh, volunteered to take a 25% pay cut and most importantly reduce the tweeting which I think some of our readers will be relieved at. Uh, we also uh, had other people, Laura Koonsberg is on £295,000, Evan Davis on £279,000 so it's not, a, it's not a bad gig if you can get it. Well, and of course, it's all coming out of uh, license fee payers' pockets. I think this is the thing. We don't really talk about how much ITV stars are paid or Channel 4 stars are paid or Sky News stars are paid because, because it's not our tax money that's paying for them. If the BBC operated under a, a normal um, sort of Netflix-style subscription model, they'd be able to pay their talent whatever they wanted because we wouldn't be forced to watch them if we wanted to, or, or rather to pay for them if we wanted to watch any television whatsoever. So yet again, another argument to get on with this far overdue license fee reform. Um, but there was another argument that we talked about this week on the website that actually was uh, seen many, many times and clicked on many, many times. And if you haven't seen it yet, I would encourage you to watch this because it is just extraordinary. A so-called comedy show, um, which I think is called uh, Frankie Boyle's New World Order, where they sort of have four comedians sit around a table and discuss issues. 
And it, it, it just, it, it, it's mind-boggling that they can categorise this as comedy. There wasn't a laugh in it. They were just sitting around analysing capitalist structures of, of sort of how whiteness is bad and capitalism is bad and sort of all of this nonsense that just they were all nodding along to. If this was a political panel show, um, which it basically was, uh, there wasn't a dissenting voice there. They all just agreed with each other that all of the things that are, that I think um, we, we, we would assume are sort of just just sort of normal and, and decent things, you know, don't kill people and, and, and probably allow people to trade money for goods and services. Um, both, of, both of these things seem to be disregarded in the discussion of that show. And it's just extraordinary comparing it to Frankie Boyle's old stuff, where he used to sort of be so edgy and, um, and, and, and raw and actually just kind of funny. Um, because he didn't start lecturing about politics, but was actually just making jokes. And I think that there's a place for lecturing about politics. And, and, and if you want to do that, you can go and set up your own talk, um, sort of political show. But I mean, I mean really, this is, this is comedy. This is what the BBC is classifying as comedy. Like, the mind boggles. Do read this story and watch the clip. And it's just, I, there, there are literally no words to describe how this stuff is just getting I through. Was, I was genuinely amazed uh, when sort of reading your, your copy to find out that the, the two comedians that were saying all this and everyone was nodding along to were comedians. I genuinely... Yeah. I thought they were. I thought they were political activists, and and apparently they they were actually being there paid to make jokes. And given that given that their wage for that show came out of the license fee pocket, I think frankly we should all demand a bloody refund. It's absolutely <laughs> remarkable. Right, but I think that's probably enough whinging about the BBC because hopefully that reform is coming. There was something that happened in the real world in, uh, in, in your home country, Paul, that, was, that, that just seemed like an utter, utter farce from this side of the Irish Sea. What went on in Ireland? Well, the context is that uh, Ireland, from being the poster boy for doing everything right, coincidentally, a island uh, that's not a great um, crossover terminus for air travellers or anything, um, has now got stats ticking up and going in the wrong direction. There's talk of uh, Dublin going into lockdown. And the health minister, Stephen Donnelly, uh, the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, and Leo Bradka, the old Taoiseach, who's now the coalition part, leader of the coalition party, uh, did this socially distanced uh, presentation, you know, the same as the Brits do. Three of them stood up there on panels uh, behind on podium. And uh, the health minister, Stephen Donnelly, felt unwell. And so he has to go off and have a coronavirus test. And they've just had the cabinet meeting and the whole cabinet has to go into uh, self-isolation. And then the, the Speaker of the Doyle, the Irish Parliament, decides that, well, Parliament has to close down for a week. So all of a sudden, after being told, yeah, things are looking bad, the government has then all got into self-isolation and the Parliament has shut down. Now, as it turned out, being the health minister, he got his test results pretty quickly, a few hours later, it was a false alarm. He just had the sniffles. But what the Irish public was angry about was if a child at a school gets the coronavirus, 
They don't close down the school. But there's a suspicion that a politician got it, and the whole parliament and the whole of the government is closed down. So it's kind of like, oh, hey, well, one rule for you guys, one rule for us. So um, politicians deservedly getting kicking in Ireland, and uh, we all had a good laugh as well. It's remarkable how quickly he got his test, because of course Keir Starmer got a test very, or Keir Starmer's kid got a test very, very quickly. Um, thankfully, there was no coronavirus or whatever, but it seemed like the turnaround time and the, the way that he got it was, was very fast and very unlike what a lot of other people in the country have been able to have been able to get. Um, but but I think we should probably move Does, on is, from... Mrs. Starmer, a, a key worker in the NHS, so they get their tests done in the rules. So to be fair, I think the Starmer child would have been got the NHS test at her local hospital because yes, but it, 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 it does show it does show that so perhaps testing for key workers is is um, operating very differently from testing for ordinary people who are struggling to get tests. My understanding is that people who work in hospitals get their tests done in the hospital. Mm, they don't have they're prioritised as well. Yeah. Um, which seems to be because, of course, hundreds of thousands of tests are being done every day. It's just now that many more hundreds of thousands of people want tests than there are tests. Um, but the, the problem is the British should... people, Tom. Sorry, say that again. The problem is the British people. If they were. <laughs> Or perhaps the problem is SAGE, which predicted that somehow there wouldn't be a massive demand in tests when loads of kids go back to school and all get the sniffles. Um, can I can but, remind you guys all the uh, angry emails we got for laughing about coronavirus last week? Uh, <laughs> we, we shouldn't take it so... What I'd like to say to the people who wrote in saying we were laughing when people were suffering is the situation is serious. We don't have to be solemn. Uh, it's an old saying. It's not because we're taking it lightly. Things are bad enough that we can't have a bit of a laugh about things. What is the world coming to? <laughs> Absolutely. And if there's one thing that we could have a laugh out uh, about this week, it is, of course, the Labour Party's duplicity, double standards and peculiar attack line when it comes to grouse shooting, which I think is something that you enjoy, Paul, or have enjoyed in the past. I've never been well, myself. Maybe as one day. Found out, as Twitter found out this week, I have been known to... Go shooting. I do live in the country. Um, uh, you, you know, uh, <laughs> it is your moral right. I know. I know. If I grind you down. I've done a lot of shooting recently, and um, I'm not embarrassed by it or anything like that. I know it's deeply unfashionable, but it contributes a massive amount to the economy. Um, it's uh, a big source of revenue and employment in parts of the world that have actually nothing else going on. You know, those moors aren't actually, since the days of tin mining, much much economic activity there if it wasn't for these uh, activities. It's, it's, it's not like we don't eat the grouse. I mean, it's quite popular. And this is, and this is probably why the SNP decided to exempt it from their rules to allow it in Scotland and why the Labour Party decided to allow it in Wales, and why the Tory party decided to allow it in England. But Paul, can you guess which one of those parties got all the flack for it this week? Yeah, I can, because you know it's seen as a, a Tory tough activity. I would say that that's what I used to think as well. But you know, the SNP actually uh, exempted it before 
the, the English government exempted it. So it's... But of course, this is just such of, a stupid journalistic story because there are a list of about 40 different activities, including ultimate frisbee and kayaking and whatever. And it just so happens that grass shooting is one of those. And of course, that, that leads all of the headlines. But it's not like it's a specific exemption for one sport. It's lots of sports that happen outdoors in, 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 in groups of more than six that have been exempted from this. <coughs> well, I mean, the other thing is, Labour, only two or three weeks ago, some Labour figures put, to, put out a report saying Labour cannot win a majority government with only 17 out of 199 constituencies. And a week later... The rural constituencies. Yeah, yeah. A week later... Yeah. Sorry, did I not say rural? Yes. Uh, 17 out of 109 rural... You can go back only 10 years where they would have had a majority of rural constituencies when the Tories are at the... Um, uh, you know, doing really badly in that part of the world. Uh, so I think they should really think carefully about pissing everybody off out in the country and being that London-centric party that is despised by much of the uh, nations of the Union. Uh, and, you know, realise that not everybody is quite so squeamish about country pursuits. Maybe, maybe if Kia organised a fox hunt on, on one of his donkey sanctuary donkeys, maybe that would merge both his love of animals and appeal to the countryside. Also, when did pheasants and things become so sort of, you know, supported by the left? I mean, I get the foxes because they're sort of cute and fluffy and a bit like dogs, but, you know, pheasants are just sort of grand pigeons, really, aren't they? I mean... I don't know why Rob's so obsessed with keeping them alive. I had no, I mean, I thought that this show would be a lot of things. I didn't realise that we'd end up discussing pheasants. Um, I don't think, I, I'm such a city person. I don't think I've ever seen a pheasant. Maybe I have. I don't know. Oh, we've, got them on, we've, we've got them in our garden, though. You know. Of course you've got them in your garden. <laughs> you've got a garden. <laughs> I've had a hell of a week, apparently. My daughter told her teacher a couple of years ago, um, she went to school and said, Daddy almost ran over a peasant on the weekend. <laughs> oh, don't give Twitter the ammunition, Paul. <laughs> and, and, and it's a true story. And she went, yeah. teacher said, a, a peasant? Yeah, yeah, no, it was just walking down the lane and it couldn't fly away and he was coming around the corner and he almost hit it. <laughs> it's just like, oh. On that note, I think that's probably where we should leave it for this week. Um, so, so don't try and run over any peasants or indeed noblemen or indeed any other sort of um, um, oh, historical classification of individual. Um, thanks for listening and sticking with us throughout the episode. Um, we'll try and be less procedural next week. Um, and have a wonderful one. Stay safe, stay alert, um, and, and try not to stay home just yet. Bye. <laughs>